Business is simple. It's just not easy. We focus on three things to help you run and grow your business more easily. Talent, sales, and how to scale. Can it be that simple? Talent. Develop a robust recruiting, vetting, and training process to help capable people and then help them to become who and what they want to be. Sales. Have a logical go-to-market strategy. Build the sales and marketing structure and plan around it and then attack and execute the plan with fanatical consistency. Scale. Know where you're going, why you're going. Share with others why they would want to join you. Be clear on who's allowed to join you and what they'll need to do to stay on board. Anticipate roadblocks. Avoid them before you get stuck. And then when you do hit one, and you will, stay calm, problem solve, and find resources to get unstuck. Sounds simple, right? Simple to understand, but not easy to do. Join us as we focus on the tips and tricks and hacks for running a profitable, hyper-growth business. We'll share real-world horror stories and celebrate the victory sagas that will inspire you. This is the Talent, Sales, and Scale Show. everyone, Brian Whittington with the Talent, Sales, and Scale Show. So really excited for today. We have Todd Capone on. He is a award-winning bestseller. We won't go into that conversation. But number one in China for like 3.2 seconds too, so I don't know what that means. But world-renowned, internationally known, Todd Capone uh, wrote the book, The Transparency Sale. And my goodness, he has a new T-shirt on, so check him out on YouTube the sales melon. So the guy's got to be smart. Welcome, Todd. Oh, thank you for having me. Yeah, I don't know if, uh, I think all the cool kids get the t-shirt. So I finally had one made. So there I go. Uh, I'm definitely not cool. I got my uh, grandpa sweater on. Apparently it's snowing (laughs) outside for goodness sake. So ah, whatever. All right. Well, let's jump into this. I mean, um, introduced to you, I heard a lot about you and, you know, what the topic is that we want to hit on here today is how in the world do we leverage technology while still having what you couched as clinical empathy? I don't even know what that is. So how do we use this technology while still having clinical empathy to build a relationship based on trust? So easy topic, right? So that's that's where we're going here today, Todd. So why in the world should we listen to you on that topic? Well, first of all, I'm a, uh, a nerd of epic proportions, I believe. Um, one of the things, so, you know, I've been around the sales world forever. Uh, my dad was in sales, like I grew up in it. Uh, but there's two things that happened over the last few years. One thing is, you know, I, I, I was always an avid, avid sales book reader, but I made this shift and I actually, every day I read research, which is super nerdy, but I like to come to my own conclusions. So I'm a behavioral science nerd. Um, but then I take that and I plug it into the foundations of what I know to be true in sales. So it, it kind of starts there. I also have a side nerdery. And for you that are watching on uh, YouTube, um, I love sales history. And so like when the kids are doing other stuff, like my wife is grabbing a book, I'm always reading stuff from the early 1900s as it relates to sales. I've got a book right here, copyright 1916, The Art and Science of Selling. Like I wish you all could smell it. I I don't think you can, but um, 
I, I also like love the the history of sales too, and those two things together, I think. Um, make me pretty unique. I haven't heard too many people that are neuroscience nerds and sales history nerds. Well, that's a, that's a, that's a good combination. So, um, I, I'm curious, I mean, you, you whipped out the, the, the book from way back when, um, my belief is there's really nothing new under the sun, not too much changes. I mean, uh, from that book from way back in the day, I mean, how much has changed? Well, it's not just that. I, <laughs> this is awful. Like uh, when you have downtime on a Saturday, what do you do? Like you do fun things. I, I literally spent two hours and I read every edition of 1906's salesmanship magazine. So it was like 400 pages of reading a magazine from the early 1900s. And I'll, I'll tell you, there's a couple of things for the most part, I could take paragraphs from that magazine or from this book or from a bunch of the other books, put them in the LinkedIn today and make that a post. And people would have no idea that it was 114 years old. Uh, you're right. Like nothing has changed. It's exactly the same stuff as there was back then. Um, however, as you kind of go through time, there are always sprinkles of new stuff that pops in. For the most part, though, it's crazy. And I can't wait to see what we think about 2020 in 2040 and the things that we do now that are crazy. But I mean, there was things like phrenology, which is a study of the brain structure and the head structure of your prospects and altering your pitch and your approach based on how, how big somebody's forehead is. That was not only a, um, a well-respected philosophy, but it was to the point where uh, Ford Motor Company used it as their sales methodology. They were using phrenology. Somebody walks into a store and you're like, hey, that person's got a big forehead. They're more likely to be receptive to new ideas. So I'm going to pitch kind of the art of the possible to them, right? It's that there's some crazy stuff through time. Uh, but for the most part, you're right. You will find that all of the foundational stuff that we know to be true and that we believe and that we teach today is exactly the same as it was 115 years ago. So at a high level, so we can get into this technology and tying that into, uh, you know, clinical empathy, what are you finding? What, what, are the, what are the overarching themes that you would say that haven't changed? Well, let me uh, go on a, a different route with that. And it's this idea, because it's going to lead us into this technology discussion. Nice time, that, by the way. I love it. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm doing the uh, kind of walk into the current conversation because I think it's really appropriate. You know, back then, sales had to happen face-to-face, -face, right? Like you, you could send something in the mail, you could put an advertisement on a trolley or whatever, but you had to sell face-to-face. -face. Now, over time technology was introduced and technology that were such incredible gifts to the sales community. For example, the telephone, right? Like we, we used to have to go face to face and like get on a horse or get on whatever, go on a train to go. And like, you could only do a certain number of face, you know, actual connected meetings per day. Well, the phone gave us this incredible opportunity to pick up this little thing and dial it and be able to have a conversation. Like Brian, I could call you and have a conversation and not have to leave where I am. Salespeople ruined it, right? Over time, what did they do? Well, they started that they looked at it and they're like, that's incredible. How do we scale it? 
And like, that's the beginning of the end for every technology to the point where we created automations. We were robo dialing. We were doing like bothering people and getting aggressive on our phone calls to the point where two things happened. Um, we had to create technology to combat the technology and to combat the salespeople. Uh, Dr. Shirley Jackson in the 1970s uh, created the technology that led to caller ID, which became a technology that was used to prevent salespeople. And then it got so bad, the government had to step in and create the do not call registry, right? And so there's the, this magical gift, salespeople ruined it. Fast forward a little bit, we get another gift, and it's email. Email. Now, instead of having to send a letter, I could type one up, hit send, and it goes right to you, Brian, like instantly, and it's in your inbox, and I could have like real written conversations with you instantly, and what happened? salespeople ruined it, right? Again, they did the same thing. They're like, the question came up in some room somewhere. They're like, huh, how do we scale this? And the next thing you do, they're creating automations. They're creating cadences. They're hammering people. They're spamming like crazy. And the two exact things that happened on the phone happened again with technology being created to prevent salespeople from using email, right? With junk email boxes and IP um, blacklists. And then the government had to step in and create the Can Spam Act of 2003, right? We keep doing this. LinkedIn, I look at it right now and I'm like, LinkedIn is such an incredible tool to salespeople. We get to see everybody's resume. We can hyper-target. We can see their profile and look at who else is like them that, so we can actually draw org charts without ever talking to them. What a gift. And then I look at my inbox. Like right now, I've got 45 connection requests that I know that nine out of every 10 of those, the minute I hit accept, I'm going to get pitch slapped with like, here's a pitch. Can I get 15 minutes? I'm like, why are we ruining this? And I can tell it's automation, right? You can yeah. guess that technology is coming to prevent it. I don't think the government will need to step in on that one, but I, I see us like doing the same things with video. I worry that we're going to do the same things with AI. And I, I just think, you know, when we look throughout history, we have spoiled gifts by scale. And like you mentioned, clinical empathy at the beginning. I, and we'll explain what that is here momentarily, I'm guessing, but stay tuned. Yeah, exactly. We're, we've just forgotten the concept of clinical empathy as we've been giving tools and technology and we, we literally ruin those gifts. And I, I don't think it's too late to turn back the time, uh, turn back the clock on those great gifts. All right. So it's, it's now November, 2020. And I think I, I've heard the quote of the, the, the year so far pitch slapped. I am definitely <laughs> stealing that one, my friend. That's awesome. So I here's stole a, it. I oh, stole that one too. So that one I can't take credit for. I don't know where I heard it, but the minute I heard it, it was burned into my brain forever. Oh yeah. So here's, here's the way that works, right? The first time I'll say, Hey, this guy, Todd Capote, he, he said this. And the next time some guy said it and yeah, I made it up. Right. So that, that's, <laughs> that's, that's how that will work. Yeah. I think it's three times. You have to footnote it three times and so then you can make it your own. <laughs> you make it your own. Yeah. I'll just switch it. So, all right. So that's awesome. All right. So all of this technology now, how? All right. So we're business owners, right? We're always looking for efficiency, productivity. So I see why the technology comes into play. So how do we counteract that? What's your, what's your recommendation? 
Well, let's talk about that idea of clinical empathy for a minute okay. and what that means, because we I think the words come up a few times now. Clinical empathy, if you look it up, it's a medical term. It's something that doctors are taught. So if you're a doctor and you have to go in and deliver some news to somebody, it's not just empathy, meaning I understand what it's like to be in your world, but clinical empathy is like I'm stepping into your brain and I understand exactly what's going on in your world. And when I do that, I can deliver this news to you, right? Well, that clinical empathy is so important from a sales perspective to have as it relates to the buyers that we interact with, right? So when you think about um, the world that we live in, consensus selling is always hard, right? Like if, if you have to sell to multiple buyers, that's hard. Consensus buying is even harder. And given that the buyers are all now remote, it's become infinitely harder for a buyer. So let's say you're selling to me and I have to go build consensus. How do I do it? I can't just walk out in the hallway and just be like, hey, Brian, did, did you see that? Are you cool with us doing that? Or like I run into you when we're getting coffee. Everything is a formal discussion, a formal meeting. And so as we think through our whole sales journeys from the minute that we engage with a customer through their decision process to what triggers their buying decision, having clinical empathy for like understanding those challenges, understanding how buyers think when times are uncertain, understanding how they build consensus when they're at home, and then understanding the behavioral science of what actually triggers prioritization and buying decisions, it's never been more important than it is right now. Well, that's, so that's interesting. So you're really tying together then this clinical empathy that a, a doctor would have to not necessarily just um, empathize, but be able to understand from their, their patient's point of, point of view how they're going to feel, how they're going to react and deliver that negative message in a way that's going to allow that person to hear it and do something about it without hopefully freaking out. And so you're tying that into this consensus buying is, you know, there, there's more and more stakeholders that are going into this as we go into pandemic 2.0 now with everything shutting down. Um, now it's even more important. I mean, there, there was something like 82% of the C, 82% increase. This was a, a, a either chorus or gong stat that I, I saw recently, like 82% back in May of all decisions moved up to the C-suite, right? So it, it's gotten more complex. And now you're saying, hey, we need to figure out how do we take this clinical empathy? One might also call it, and correct me if I'm wrong here, I don't want to put words in your mouth. One might also call it, um, uh, what, shoot, was the word I was going for. Um, one might call it that, that uh, what's in it for me from your buyer's points, point of view, but the buyer's journey, that's the word I was looking for. So really you're couching that into the buyer's journey, making sure that you understand it from every single stakeholder's point of view. And that's really going to go into what I would couch as business acumen with an other's focus. So that's a long-winded way of saying that. Is that right? Well, yeah. So we'll look at two elements of behavioral science. Um, the first one is a discovery that I made, which blew my mind. And it was this idea that um, our decisions are biased by the journey. What I mean by that is like, I'll take you back to high school for a second. Like if you, like, I'll have nightmares from my high school experiences. But um, like I remember sophomore year, 
uh, the English teacher comes into the room and says, hey, we're going to do a um, book report. So everybody's going to do a book report. Here's 50 books that you can choose from. Choose one. You got six weeks. Like, what did you do? Well, I, if it were me, what I did is I looked at the list and I was like, all right, which ones have I already read? But I was kind of a dumbass. Like, I didn't read any of the classics. So that was off the table. But then I was like, all right, which one has a movie? Which one has Cliff's Notes? Um, it, it, like, you know, I started down that path because I'm not looking for the biggest reward. I'm looking to the easiest path to a reward, right? And so, like, you know, I go through the list, I pick a book. And um, that is going to be easy for me to watch a movie to get the context, get the cliff notes to get more context. And then I'll read through the book and I'll kill this thing. And I, I, I did. Well, let's translate that to the buying world. Our buyers do the exact same thing. Our perception of a reward is biased by the journey to get there. So if the journey is going to be hard and there's a big reward out there, we're like, eh, that reward's not as good as I thought. And that's why status quo wins out so often and that our customers reprioritize because they're looking right now, if there's friction in the journey, their brain is going to say that reward is not as good as I thought it was. I, I could get even nerdier. There's a couple of research studies that are like, what? Like crazy stuff. Um, so part of this clinical empathy is thinking about the buying journey and going, all right, where are we introducing friction? Where are we creating issues for the buyer that are making this look hard? I'll give you two quick ways that this is happening. Um, number one is in your sales processes. One of the things that um, I hear companies doing, and I, I, I get like, if I could grab somebody's shirt through a Zoom call, I try to, uh, is this idea that you get an inbound lead and uh, you have an SDR that then qualifies it and then passes it to an AE for another appointment. That AE basically requalifies it, asks a bunch of discovery questions, and then schedules a call to do a demo. And then there's a demo that doesn't use any of the information that was used during the qualification or the discovery. And like friction, friction, friction. Like we're, we're creating, we're making it really hard for the buyers to get to where they need to go. We're hiding the price right? Like, hey, well, let's build enough value so that the customer, when they hear the price, it equates. Like, no, that's not how our brains work. Our job as salespeople is to remove friction from that journey, not only to, you know, help the buyer on their path, but the behavioral science says that it actually helps the buyer prioritize your projects over other ones when you make it super easy for them. All right, so there's there's just a ton there because we could go in about 17 different segments on this then because really, you know, can we leverage technology to help us with that? That's going to be one question because it really gets into a couple here, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, Todd, but the way I'm looking at this, there's a couple of things that we need to do. One is, like you said, you know, WD-40, the whole entire process. How do we, how do, we do that? Two... How do we de-risk it? Because people are scared to death right now. So part of that friction is the fear of the unknown. So how do we give them that information um, without losing control? The third piece would really be um, how do we how do we do smart selling? Because as soon as I give you all of the information and price which some might argue is what you're suggesting. Now I lose all my leverage. So now you don't need me. So 
Yeah, I, oh, man. all right, let's you have, go. You have wound me up. It's like Toy Story. You pull the string and <laughs> off I go. Um, all right, so let me, I'm going to talk about two things here. Um, first of all, I, shameless self-promotion. I wrote a book about that second question that you said. It's called The Transparency Sale. Um, I bet it's so, an award-winning book. It, it is an award-winning book, and it was a bestseller as well. So nice. um, here's the thing. Um, let, let, actually, let me talk about that pricing thing that you just said at the end about losing your leverage. I had about 12 years ago accidentally stumbled on this idea that leading, like playing cards face up with your pricing has magical impacts on trust building, on deal predictability, on deal values. And when I say trust building, you know, typical negotiation styles are huge trust eroders. And that always drove me nuts that we do that right at the time that like right at the end of the sales cycle, we build trust, the customer says yes, and then we say, all right, cool, I'm going to start lying to you, right? And like that's a traditional negotiation technique. Well, I had uh, 12 years ago uh, walked into a negotiation. I was the VP of sales for a tech company, walked into a big negotiation, $4.5 million deal. I thought it was just me and my rep and a procurement person from this big oil services company. When I walked into the room in their Houston conference room, there were six procurement people. And I swear, like one of the women was drooling. She was just like, oh, I love a good negotiation. And so I started the conversation by saying, listen, I know where this is going here. Here are the four things that we care about as an organization. You know, we care about volume. So how much you buy timing of cash. So how fast you pay length of commitment. So how long you commit, the longer, the better. And the timing of the deal, like our ability to predict our business is really valuable to us. Um, and so when they ask for a discount, we're able to do this collaboratively and in a trust building way where it's like, hey, we need 30% off. I'm like, okay, well, we've got four ways to get there. Commit to more volume, pay faster, commit longer, or help us forecast our business. This um, was an accidental gold mine back 12 years ago. And then over the last 12 years, I've built it up and added the behavioral science. But October, beginning of October, um, the uh, Journal of Marketing Research publishes this big research study. It is called Open Negotiation, the Backend Benefits of Salespeople's Transparency in the Front End. The behavioral science tells us that when we lead with our price, our brain is better able to categorize and assess whether the juice is going to be worth the squeeze during the process. And until it is unable to understand what the squeeze is going to be, all of your talk of how tasty the juice is and how healthy it is, is going to go through a filter in the buyer's brain. All right. So disarm it. And, and I'll finish with this. What the study showed is that your deal values go up. Your customers stay buy more and advocate. And of course, it's built on a rock solid foundation of trust. So not only should you lead with transparency, but leading with your pricing has magical impacts on everything having to do with your sales processes. All right. So I will not disagree with that. And I'm going to throw in a I don't know want to say caveat, but I'll push back a little bit. Let's play the others uh, other side of this. If I lead with price, we buy emotionally and we justify intellectually. I don't know if you would agree with that or not. Totally. Yep, absolutely. Okay. So if we buy intellectually, or excuse me, if we buy emotionally but justify intellectually, 
then my sense is us as salespeople, us as marketers, us as business owners, we have to get to the people, we have to get our prospects to the point where they're emotionally involved to where they're going to be open to that change before I lay out a price or at least a range. Is that follow in line with what you're suggesting here? Well, yeah. So when you think about, um, let's talk transparency for a second, um, because that is where the emotion is truly built. Um, the, The book is based on my last role as the chief revenue officer of a ratings and review software company in Chicago here. We sold technology to retailers and brands. And our technology was the thing that, like, if you went to crocs.com, you know, you're buying a pair of shoes, you look at the shoes, you go down, the ratings and reviews was us, right? We were the powering that with them and Vineyard Vines and Jet and like a thousand other companies. We had done a research study around when a website is acting as the salesperson, what do buyers do? What do consumers do? And as it turns out, we all look at reviews now, so no surprise, right? When we're buying something we haven't bought before, 96% of us read reviews first. But here was the thing that like blew my mind. I quit my job and wrote a book. Like, how stupid is that? Um, 80, it, it was between 82 and 85% of us go to the negative reviews first. Right. So when we're looking at a product, we skip the fives and go right to the fours, threes, twos, and ones. And when a product has an average review score between a 4.2 and a 4.5, that is the optimal review score for product conversion, meaning the highest odds of somebody buying are that score, meaning a 4.2 sells better than a 5. I looked at that and I thought, wait a second, why is our brain saying, I got to go to the negative first? And why is it that a 4.2 sells better than a 5? That sounds crazy to me. I dug into the behavioral science and found that it's the way we're wired. Like we're wired to predict what our experience is going to be like. We are wired to try to understand what the downside is before we can file any of the upside, before we can get excited about it. And so as a result, it turns out that it's not just when a website is acting as the salesperson, it's when a human being is acting as a salesperson too. When we lead with our imperfections, our flaws, or you might not like this, it's incredibly disarming to the buying brain and it creates an immediate foundation of trust, which is an emotion that makes every other word coming at you go through the what's called the limbic filter and hit that emotional element, right? You're building on a foundation of trust. So to round back around to what you just said, what works like magic is to walk into sales processes and, and understand what the customer's looking to do and say, hey, listen, before we get too deep into this, um, here's something we don't do. Right. Like, for example, in the ratings and review space, our biggest competitor created an add on that not only did we not have, but it wasn't even on our roadmap. And so uh, the first time I had tried this was with an apparel company and uh, they were evaluating us and our competitors. And I was like, before we get too far, is that going to be an important thing? Because it's not something we do. It's not on our roadmap. Like, we haven't even contemplated it. And if it's going to be important, like, let's talk about that. And, like, it just disarmed them. And then we talk about the, the kind of the, the layering of price. And just in that instance, our pricing was very similar to our competitors. But for us to be able to just say, hey, listen, what we're talking about here is likely going to be in this range. Let's address that up front, too. If, if we're close let's keep going. If we're way off, one of us might be in the wrong discussion. Okay. So 
th- th- this is good then. So what you're saying is your your neuroscience and uh, all, all of this stuff is is uh, is validating some of the stuff that I've been taught. So if you think about it. If we go to, uh, you know, I'm coming out of the Sandler methodology. So that Sandler methodology, you go uh, bonding and rapport, you create an environment of trust, comfort, and credibility at a peer-to-peer level. Then you do your upfront contract or close before you start. Then you go pain, which is AKA create the business value or create the business case. And then you go into budget, which is, are you ready, willing, and able to make any and all investments? And that's where you do the range there. So my understanding, and correct me if I'm wrong here, based upon Listen, my my clouded viewpoint, right? My 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 cognitive bias is pain budget decision. So it seems like the challenger has validated that. It seems like what you're suggesting here is you get pain using spin selling, challenger sales, whatever the case may be. Then after that, once you get the emotional compelling reason why to take action, their vision of the solution of what they're hoping you could do maybe pepper in a couple of things. Hey, we don't do this, don't do that to add to, um, to validity or transparency or, you know, integrity there. And then you go into budget and say, Hey, big picture, it's going to be between blank and blank. Is that a showstopper? Is that kind of what you're suggesting? Yeah. I mean, I'm actually suggesting pulling that forward and here's the thing. Um, how far forward and where, how would that work? Like right, right near the beginning, like right near the beginning of your discussion. So, um, the mistake that, let me, I'll share it. There's a data point here. Gartner, a couple of years ago, did a study that looked at, in a consensus buying situation, how do buyers spend their time? Okay. What they found is that only 39% of their time is spent talking to you, talking to your competitors, or talking to their internal buying groups. 61% of their time is spent doing other stuff. And that other stuff is back-channeling you, looking at research studies, talking to analysts, calling peers, checking reviews if you're selling technology, the G2s and the trust radiuses of the world. They're even reading Glassdoor reviews, right? Our buyers are doing all of that homework, and that's homework. When we go back to clinical empathy and removing friction from the buying journey, the more that we can lead with, our job as salespeople is to help um, the buyer make really, really smart decisions, right? That's number one. And, you know, we're to Sherpa that process. But number two is a huge fallacy that sales leaders like myself before, I did this horribly wrong multiple times, and now I realize it, is that, like, we were measuring to the wrong things. And what I mean by that is, you know, like, I used to look at my sales org and go, hey, I need everybody to be at three to four X their quota in pipeline at any at any time. Right. Right. Because if you're only going to close 25%, then you got to have four X to feel comfortable. Well, I, I now look at the science around this and go, that was really stupid. Like, <laughs> wh- why are we not doing a better job of qualifying in or qualifying out deals faster? Right. And what I mean by qualifying out is if you're going to lose, lose fast. If you're, um, if, if the thing that's a downside to your technology, your products, your services is something that's going to be really important to them, you better vet that early. If your price range is way out of whack to what they're thinking about, vet that early. If a customer is only planning to spend 10000 to solve an issue and you're proposing something that's 100000 either one of you is in the wrong deal or it's an opportunity to address that up front and say, hey, listen, custom companies like yours are spending this much and here's why and vet that out at the beginning of the process. You'd be amazed that 
I, I remember the movie Eight Mile um, with Eminem. <laughs> remember the, the final rap battle where he walks in and uh, he just lays out all of the things that that guy is going to rip on him about. He does it himself. And then when he gives that guy the mic, the guy's just like, I got nothing. Well, when you do this right, what you're going to find is your sales cycle speed up dramatically. That 61% number that I talked about of buyer homework that's where your sales cycle shrink. Because if you're doing the homework for the buyer and doing it up front, you're going to find that that speeds up. The first time I tried this was with a apparel company in what normally would have been a six-month sales cycle. They told me they were going to do an RFP and uh, they were going to fly us up to New York. My 15-minute conversation with them and their whole team, uh, the, the guy literally kicked everybody out of his office and showed me his budget 15 minutes into the meeting. And 10 days later, they threw out the RFP. They didn't have us come up and they made a decision for us. So sales cycles shrink, win rates go up, mainly because you're working the deals you should win and you're, you're uh, qualifying out the deals you're going to lose anyway. And lastly, you undercut your competition's ability to position against you when you do that. So uh, I guess what I'm trying to do, uh, I mean, I, I agree with everything you're saying. I'm, I'm, uh, I suppose what I'm trying to do is figure out how does this fit in sales cycle or how does this fit into a sales process? Because I know, um, so whenever you check out the, the transparency summary, you'll, you'll look at your temp model, right? Um, but where does it go into uh, when to bring this up? Because it, it almost seems like you walk in the door, you go, all right. Here's all the areas that are you're going to have consternation whenever you buy from us. One is going to be price, so why don't we get that out of the way now? We're expensive. How are you going to deal with that? Yeah, it's it's not quite that dramatic. Um, <laughs> and there's uh, I'll, I'll impart the wisdom of a supermodel here because like why wouldn't we? Um, Tyra Banks coined the term flossum, and flossum is to embrace your flaws, but know that you're still awesome. So my suggestion: you you don't like spray this out in your prospecting. And in your first discussion, I am not advising anybody walk in and go, Hey, this is why we suck. Like that's, that's not what we're doing. What we're doing is we're using clinical empathy to disarm the buying brain and understand if we understand what the customer cares about and what custom companies like theirs typically deal with. If we go and we do the homework that the buyer would do and see all of the things that they're going to find along that path. And we lead with those things. So this example with the apparel company, I'll, I'll tell you the story real quick as to what happened. Um, I was in New York. I had an afternoon open. My VP of sales, so I was the CRO, VP of sales texts me and he's just like, hey, Calvin Klein just came in as an inbound lead. And I was like, oh, that's awesome. So I called my VP of sales and I'm like, hey, tell me about it. And he said, hey, um, they're starting to evaluate. They want to put reviews on their site. Um, and I was like, well, walk me through the process. Well, they're going to issue an RFP, and then they're going to have us all come up to New York and do the presentation. And I was like, wait, I'm, I'm in New York now, and my afternoon just canceled. It, I know this is a one in 50 shot, so no pressure, but could you have the rep reach out to their head of e-commerce and just tell them I'm in town with a couple hours open and see if he wants to grab coffee? The rep does. The guy says yes, which is like a one in 100 shot. Yeah. I go over there, meet him. We go into his office. The first thing he says to me, and he's very New York, right? Like there was no small talk. He points to the monitor arm coming out of his cube wall. And he's like, you can plug in your laptop for your presentation there. And I'm like, um, 
coffee. Um, like I thought we were having coffee. I look to my right and people are wheeling chairs in seven of them. <laughs> so there's now nine of us sitting in his little Manhattan office yeah. and he starts the discussion with uh, like, he goes right in like New York. He said, Todd, listen, we've just started this evaluation. We're uh, talking to your competitor. We're talking to you. How are you better than them? And they all kind of lean in, right? And again, I had just come across all of this data and made this discovery and, and reading my research. I was like, wait, I got nothing to lose. I'm all by myself here. So if this gets screwed <laughs> up, like yeah. I can't get in trouble anyway. I can but blame I, the rep. <laughs> exactly. So I was like, hey, um, before we get too deep into this about how we're better, can I explain a one way that they're better than us before we get too deep? Because they just released an add-on. So their ratings and review software, they got this ad retargeting thing that they just released. Not on our radar, not on our roadmap. We hadn't even contemplated it. Now, if that's going to be an important consideration in your journey, can we vet that out now before you, like you got eight people in here, before you invest a ton of time, before my team responds to RFPs and I have to fly them all up here? Like, it would be really cool to get through that right now. But they, you could like literally feel the air in the room just kind of like, oh, oh wait, hey. so tell me about that. And I literally was selling on behalf of the competitor. And I was like, here's what it does. Their first customer is the Gap. So like another apparel company. And again, like we don't have an answer to it. And the, the, the head of e-commerce was like almost trying to help me. He was like, well, what would you do if we did want that? And I was like, I don't know. They just announced it. Like, again, we hadn't even contemplated it. My assumption is there's tons of ad retargeting technologies out there. And our platform is pretty simple to plug things in. That would likely be the short-term way that we would do that. But we'd have to talk about it over time. They all go around the room and literally they're like, no, we don't care about that. We hadn't even thought about it. Um, but like, that's not something important to us. And you're right, Todd, we would go to a third party. We wouldn't go to a reviews company for that kind of technology. And I was like, all right, cool. As long as you're good with that, here's what we're great at. And like, you know, we give that up to be great at our core. And so I go through that whole thing. Um, the, literally, they're all joking and laughing and interacting. And it is like a completely different vibe than any presentation I've ever been in. And it was the first time I tried this. He literally 15 minutes in looks around. He's like, hey, I've heard enough. Have you heard enough? And they're like, yeah. And they're all laughing that the seven people get up and leave. He pulls a folder from his credenza, the same credenza that's got the, uh, like, like the same wall that's got the monitor, opens it up. It says e-commerce budget, fifth line, line item down. He was like, can you hit that number? Here's how much we've got budgeted. <laughs> I, I never had a customer ever show me their budget. Transparency begets transparency. We were, and, and so here's what happened. 10 days later, he calls me directly. So like, you know, he's dealing with the reps and all that. He called me directly. So I'm in my office. I see Calvin Klein come up on my caller ID. I'm like, you know, this is Todd. He's like, hey, Todd, I wanted to call you first because uh, we've made a decision that we just feel comfortable with you and your company, and we're going to go with you. Um, and uh, But the reason I called you to tell you that is because when I delivered that news to your competitor, they immediately went into a hard sell about their ad retargeting technology. <laughs> and and uh, it was just like, and I joked with them that like even PowerViews as CRO is trying to sell us on that. That's not something, and, and like we know what we're going to do when we're ready for that. So like leave us alone. Yeah. So, I mean, that like that's that's the choreography, right? It's, you know, leading with, hey, this is what we're not, 
like that might not fit or that a competitor's doing better or something you might find when you're doing your research. When we lead with that, and again, it's not we suck. It's like, hey, we don't quite do that. So, okay, so a couple of things are coming out of this. If it's a no, if it's an N-O, then I want a K-N-O-W as quickly as possible exactly. to allocate my resources differently. Okay, so let's go back in the way back machine whenever we first started this conversation, and, and we were going to talk about, all right, so all of that said, how do we do this at scale? How do we do this with technology? Because the, the fact of the matter is everyone else is leveraging technology, leveraging sales enablement tools. They're doing templates and everyone's screaming, ah, this is the worst. Don't do it. We're all complaining. Even us in sales who are leveraging these tools are complaining about the, you know, all, all of the different ways that we're getting attacked. So how do we do this at scale, remain competitive and be human and doing the right stuff here? So uh, easy question. Go ahead. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like magic bullet. Um, well, I mean, like I, I joke that there is no magic bullet, but transparency is pretty close. Right. Um, but let's talk about the technology. Uh, like I said, when I was talking through that kind of history rant, that the second that we as a, as an organization, as a sales team, start thinking about scale is when we start going off the rails because there's, Personal. So it rhymes, by the way. That has to be true. When you're thinking of scale, you go off the rails. So since it rhymes, it must be true. So go that, ahead. That's a, good, that's a good quote, too. I like that. Um, so, I mean, there's personal one-to-one -one discussions, there's scale, and then there's insanity, right? And we kind of have this, this string there, and too often we go too far. And, and what I mean by too far is, I, I, you know, you mentioned like gong, chorus. Like there was a data point that said that it now requires 18 touches to get to an executive when we're doing cold outreach. And when I look at that, I remember, and I, I've heard people say this before that go, you know what? We're only doing 10. We should add eight. And I'm like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Like maybe you should look at your message and go, why is this executive resisting the first 17 times? It's not the number of touches, it's the message, right? And so I believe in my heart that you can still use technology, that you can still get to scale, but you've got to stay at that front end. There is a, a cost benefit analysis that goes with every piece of scale that we touch. We're losing our effectiveness and we're hurting our customer relationships. That just being able to spend a couple of minutes, have templates where you can fill some things in, but when I talk about LinkedIn, like if I'm reaching out to you, Brian, before our discussion, I read your LinkedIn profile, right? It took me 30 seconds and I could pull one or two things out of that so that when we have a discussion or when I reach out to you, I can at least call something out that shows that I did at least a little homework. Yeah. This like one message sprayed at scale and then creating like one message generic cadences I think is ruining us and it's ruining our technology that we just need to go, Hey, let's spend a few seconds on each one of these things and learn how to be a giver instead of a taker. So, I mean, to overly simplify is really what you're suggesting. Leverage all of this technology to have a one-on-one -on -one conversation. Yes. Right. So figure out how, how do you, leverage all of this technology, whether it's a, it's a dialing system or a dialing platform or an email um, automation tool, where you're, you're, you're able to do things fast, but not psycho fast. 
Well, yeah. I mean, if you think about in my last role, um, so I, I would get 100 to 150 emails every single day. And I had 30 to 35 meetings per week that I was in. So what a nightmare. But um, I, you know, I, I looked at my email inbox like uh, have you ever played the instant lottery, the scratch off lottery? You know, it was, it was very similar to that, that like, you know, there's probably, it's going to be a loser, but you got to check right? because there could be a winner in there. That's how I felt about my inbox. Like I had to check my inbox because there could be something important in there, but odds are it's just filled with losers. And what's important, my customers, my prospects and my team, right? Like probably in reverse order of importance. Those are the things that I'm looking for. Now, there's another category of like my boss, my investors, my peers, um, you know, but way down on that list is unknown potential vendors, right? Those are typically the junk. And I could tell because my inbox, whether it's Gmail, my phone, Outlook, there's a preview of the first 10 words in the inbox or in the, the message, right? I could look and see, is this message here to help me or to sell me? And if it's here to sell me, it would just get a select all delete. And normally you could tell uh, because those start with the word I, or like, I just wanted to, or I wanted to see, or I wanted to make sure you're, you saw my message before, or I wanted to bubble this message to the top. All right, delete, 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 right? I think there's a tremendous opportunity to stand out in the white noise of the executive inbox by just changing the way that you think about even those first 10 words. And if you're going to send something generic, make it helpful to me. Um, I, I'll give you two quick examples. I, uh, as my office is in Chicago. We posted SDR roles on our website, so sales development rep roles. Two days later, I get an email from a company that says, Todd, here is a salary study of what SDRs are making in the Chicago market. So in my sea of I wanted tos, I see this one. And I'm like, huh. I click on it, open it up. Sure enough, it's a salary study of what SDRs make in the Chicago market. And they wrote, the second line was, saw you just posted some roles, thought this might be helpful. I'm like, it is helpful. That's great. Two weeks later, quarter ends, I get another message from them. It says, Todd, here is a CRO board deck template. You just finished, and, and so, I mean, again, stands out in the sea of, of sameness. I open it up. It says, Todd, our understanding is you just finished your quarter, hope it went great, and hope this saves you some time in prepping for your board meeting. Interesting. I start bursting into tears. And I'm like, who are these people? <laughs> this is so great. And and so my, my point is, like, and you hear other people say this, and I wholly believe it, that you would never go to a bank and make withdrawals before you've made deposits. And that if you're going to use technology or outreach, just find tools and resources and opportunities to create value for like stop selling in those outreaches and create personalized value wherever so, possible. That, that's ask, your opportunity. Let me ask the question that everyone's asking. Did you end up ever doing business with them? I did talk to them. So, you know, it's funny um, with cold calling, you know how many cold calls I answered as a CRO? I probably zero. Okay. Um, like I, I literally, I couldn't guide my day by distract or um, uh, not distractions, but interruptions. Right. Like my day was planned out. It had to be. Um, so many times I'm sitting there looking at my phone. And I see your name come up on the caller ID and I'm not answering it. Right. right. Which is why I never understood why people don't leave short, valuable voicemails. Like at least 
you know, do that. The, the number of voicemails I got per day were so small that when I would get one, it would turn over into a text and be emailed to me. And I read all of those. Like, that's actually a pretty interesting opportunity. Um, my point being, when this company called, because they had the technology to see that I was interacting with them, it was the first cold call that I answered because it wasn't cold and, and they'd made a deposit. Right. And I was just like, I, I answered and I was like, I, I, they started the call and I was like, Hey, first of all, thank you. Like I actually used those tools. Like, what do you got going on? And, um, and they, I, I don't think we ever purchased from them, but again, it's just an opportunity to stand out from the sea of sameness. Yeah. And you know, but that really brings up a good point that at the end of it all, it's about having that initial conversation to see if there's alignment because all they're trying to do on their end is figure out, hey, can we help these folks? And if we can, great. If not, maybe you know somebody that we can help because if I had the cure for cancer and I call you up and say, hey, Todd, do you have cancer? No, I'm not going to get pissed. I'm not going to be like, oh, are you kidding me? Of course you have cancer. I'm going to fight with you on it. I'm going to go, oh, thank heavens you don't have cancer. That's great. You probably know somebody who does you wouldn't want to make an introduction, would you? And then you get an introduction. So yeah, it's, it's ridiculous. And you've got a relationship. And and here's the thing. Um, I've always been an advocate of this concept I call extreme firmographic focus. Okay. Meaning, um, and especially like when times get tough, we've got this kind of knee jerk response that like, Hey, let's cast a wider net. I'm a believer in casting a very tight net and always casting a tight net. Uh, firmographics, meaning, the, the company vertical sizes and geos that you're going after. And then the demographics, you should always uh, have a, a focus on, like, what are the titles and roles, like levels and roles that we're looking for? Right. What that ends up doing is that it sharpens your focus about what those people care about. And you're in a much better position to be able to scale uh, the idea of creating value for those people. If you're dealing with, like, for example, in one of my um, companies, we were really struggling, but we were having success with aerospace companies, like as crazy as that sounds. I told every rep on my team, I was like, for the next three weeks, we are calling on nothing but aerospace companies. And they're like, what are you talking about? Like for three weeks, let's just do that. And marketing supported it by finding all of the stuff that they would care about. We, we basically practiced clinical empathy before we knew what that meant. And the next thing you know, we, we closed Boeing, uh, Cessna, Gulfstream, like we started killing it. And then we just went out a little bit wider. Yeah. And the, the reason is twofold. Number one, we were able to be much more personalized and add value to our potential buyers because we knew them. Uh, we knew them without knowing them. And number two is this idea that confidence is contagious, uh, that when we're confident, people actually sense that our our confidence part of our brain lights up and we become confident as a result. And when my reps would get on the phone or have a conversation with an aerospace leader, they knew their business yeah. and they were confident in their delivery. It wasn't some generic, like, um, Hey, you, it was, <laughs> Hey, like I understand your business and I understand the struggles that you have. And when you share something that you're struggling with, I can actually say, cool, you didn't mention this one too. And I just talked to Gulfstream and Cessna and they're having this issue. Are you having that issue too? And all of a sudden you're just like this renowned expert talking to them on the phone. I, I think that that provides opportunities to do what we just talked about in the inbox at scale, because you know your customers without actually knowing them. Yeah. And so the curious thing is, um, you know, there's again, nothing new. Right. This exactly. Is the, 
this is the business acumen where you can have a a, a valuable conversation to helping people to solve problems. Exactly. I mean, that's all we're doing. Um, right. So I, I love it. All right. So and I'll tell you I'll, I'll, one more thing about that. Like this, this idea of the transparency sale was triggered by this research study and being able to take the lessons learned of how consumers want to interact when they buy something they haven't bought before and translating that to the human to human world, because they are exactly the same. And if we can remove friction, we can look at online consumer behavior, translate that. Obviously that's not new. But transparency, like I found a quote from a Spanish philosopher in 1647 about exaggeration and transparency, you know, back 400 years ago, right? I'm like, damn it, there's not even this new. (laughs) But like, you know, you're right. Like all of these things you can find throughout history. We've always known them, but it's about bringing them together and using common sense and not ruining the gifts of technology by overscaling. Yeah, because if you scale... You get off the rails. And you fail. <laughs> and you fail. There you go. So, <laughs> son of a God. All right. So I'll tell you, um, a couple of things. We'll have to scream through this because we, we really um, went a lot on this thing, and I really appreciate it. It was a fun fun conversation, so thank you for this. Um, what, what's one of the biggest challenges that maybe you've faced that you can help us to avoid because we don't want to go through the same heartache that you have? <laughs> Oh, man. Um, Gosh, there's so many. I I think this idea of pipeline loads and looking at metrics the wrong way is the most recent example of mistakes that I made as a leader. Right. Um, Meaning trying to manage reps to the three to four X your quota in pipeline. I believe that if you do a better job of qualifying up front, you can get that down to two X. And instead of spending your time developing opportunities that you're bound to lose, you spend more time on the deals that you should win and spending more time prospecting into looking for those gold, those gold nuggets. So leaders, or if you're a rep and you're going to move into leadership, or if you've got a good relationship with your leader, when you hear the three to four X thing, like do a little education there. I think that's a huge one. And then again, looking at metrics like the 18 touches metric, right? When we start to think about metrics as, hey, if that's the average, then that's what I should be doing. That's your fastest path to also becoming average. I think take a step back. Yeah, yeah. Take a step back and go like, why is that the average? And how do we do better? Instead of 18, wouldn't it be awesome if we could get it in three or four by providing value? Like, I I just think there's huge opportunities there. And it was something I always did wrong. Interesting. So, and if, if you need some help with that, we have a, uh, you know, basically it's a, it's a math of sales. Uh, you know, Ryan Reisert and I were talking through that cookbook, whatever you want to call it, but we have a calculator that you can tap into to really figure out the, the, how to reverse engineer. And I think to your point, Todd, Knowing those metrics, knowing those numbers, how do you mentor, coach, and train to those numbers so you can you can work at each one? Because at that top end, like you're talking about, a half percent percent difference up there makes a huge difference on the bottom of that funnel. So, yeah, love it. Absolutely. Okay. So now how about um, in terms of a business hack, you've given us so many different ideas and you can couch this rather from a, from a hiring talent perspective, a sales perspective, or scaling the business. Uh, what's one hack that maybe you want to give us of, you know, how do we do this? Wow. Um, well, I mean, I, I keep going back to transparency. Um, and, and so from a hiring perspective and from an interviewing perspective, this idea that 
the, the you know the Tyra Banks being flossum, um, it has magical impacts on all elements of anything having to do with influence. You know, to the point where um, transparency begets transparency. I, I like a little side note. I bought a new car about a year and a half ago, and I walked in and did all of the things that they tell you not to do. And it's amazing what happened. Uh, like they tell you, like, don't tell them that you've got a trade in. Um, if there's something wrong with the trade in, don't tell them that either. And then don't tell them how you plan to pay. I literally, I was just like, I'm a nerd for this stuff. And if I don't get that car, I don't care. So I want to try this. And so I walked into the dealership and I was like, hey, listen, um, I, I've already got the, uh, the dollar out. So I'm going to be paying you right now for whatever we buy. I have a trade in. Uh, son of a gun, you're locking up. Smoke blowing out of the back of the my Jeep on the drive-in here. Uh, there's something catastrophically wrong with it. So you 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 broke up. So let me let me go. Let me have you reverse. So somehow that that got tagged. So you just went into uh, and we can edit that part out. You, you went into the three things that you shouldn't do, and I, you did all three. Son of a gun, you locked up again. How am I doing? All right. Now you're, Here, you're gonna, unlocked. Okay, cool. I'm going to, let me just check real quick and make sure there's nothing that's uh, jamming up our signal. Um, nope, there shouldn't be. I've got everything off. Um, all right. So I walked into the, the car dealership and did the three things that they tell you never to do. Number one is don't tell them how you plan to pay. Number two is don't tell them you have a trade-in. And then for goodness sakes, Number three is if there's something wrong with the trade-in, don't tell them that either. Yeah. I thought, I got nothing to lose because I don't really care that much. I want to try this. And so I walked in and I literally sat down with this, this sales rep and I just I laid him on him. And I was just like, hey, I'm paying cash. I have a trade-in. And there was smoke pouring out of the back of the, the Jeep on the drive up. Like literally there was. <laughs> um, I don't know what was going on with it, but I was like, it's got something catastrophically wrong. Um uh, unbelievably, 10 minutes later, I got this kid's whole backstory, uh, his problems with his dad, his ADHD, like transparency begets transparency. It's amazing in the how it trust, uh, how it builds trust in whatever you do. My, my point coming back to uh, talking about hiring and or interviewing is um, I had a rep a couple of months ago call me up just randomly. He's like, can I get your advice? I'm going for a job and I'm not quite qualified and I don't know how to do this. I'm like, yeah, sure. So I, I get on the phone with him. He says, Todd, um, the job description calls for five years of enterprise SaaS experience. And as it turns out, I don't have any. Yet they're bringing me in for a final panel interview. So they, there was something they liked about me. When should I address that or how should I do it? And I was like, lead with it. Like literally before you'd say, answer any questions, lead with it. And here's how it goes. He walks in, they do all the intros. And then he says, hey, before we get too far into this, there was one thing that, um, that I would just want to make sure is cool and that we're on the same page. You're, you're asking for five years of enterprise SaaS experience. And as you can tell from my resume, I don't have any. Is that something that we should talk about up front here? And like the whole room was just like, huh? yeah, um, he, he like I gave him that advice. We I talked through how to do that. He calls me two days later and he was like, Todd, turns out I was up against four other uh, 
you know, candidates, all of which had their requisite experience. And I am right now standing, holding the offer. <laughs> and so, and I was like, that was one of the, like, you know, that, that move you just made, that was one of mine. Like I hung up and I would like, I'm by myself here in my house, like pumpernickeling around, like that's so freaking cool. But that works on both sides, right? When yeah. you lead with, Hey, this is, if I was in your shoes, this is what I would be worried about. Let's address that up front. You do that on the other side, right? If you're hiring, for goodness sakes, go to Glassdoor and read your own company reviews that are left by current and former employees and understand what other employees are saying. Because if you're a good candidate, if like a good candidate's going to do that research and may be afraid to bring up things that are negative in there. As a hiring manager, you might be willing to say, hey, listen, um, you know, as, as you probably did your research, you, you may have seen a couple of things about something that happened a year ago where uh, we had a bad manager in here and it created some, you know, like, you know, kind of one uh, weak link kind of breaks the chain, right? Um, we have, we've addressed that, but it, like, was there anything else that you found that you're concerned about? Or do you want to ask me more questions about that? When you lead with that, I mean, you build a foundation of trust in your relationships and you qualify in or out people a lot faster during yeah. the process. So embrace transparency in everything that you do. Love it. All right. So screaming down here, resources that you might recommend, books, podcasts, guides, anything that you might suggest other than the transparency sale. Well, gosh, I think that um, LinkedIn has become an echo chamber. Um you know, it's just a lot of people that agree with themselves uh, talking to each other. And I'm, <laughs> I, and I'm, I'm one of like, I, I share a lot of content on LinkedIn too. So, I mean, if you want, I'm trying to share kind of the uh, counterintuitive, the behavioral science stuff. The one thing that I learned a few years ago that has helped me out a lot is read stuff that's other than the norm. Yeah. Right. Um, it, like I'm reading sales history, but I read behavioral science. I read a behavioral science research study on Japanese parenting techniques um, and the impact of being strict, being not strict, and being in the middle on the way that children develop. And I look, I read it with a filter of sales leadership, right? Like, you know, and so take those opportunities to start to look for other things in other areas because nobody else is doing that. And there's, there's gold out there. There's things that people have learned that are talking about like behavioral science and decision science. Gosh, neuroscientists have nailed how we make decisions. And yet that has not quite made its way aggressively into the sales world. And there's like, as a salesperson, wouldn't it be great to know how buyers <laughs> make decisions? Like it, there's opportunities, just get outside of your echo chamber and find other types of things to read. Like I listen to neural marketing podcasts. Like I yeah. find those to be fascinating and there's lots of good ones out there. Just do some searches on other topics and you'll you know, listen with your sales ear and you're going to find some little nuggets that nobody else is doing. Got it. Love it. Okay. Well, hey, listen, uh, Magic 8-Ball, pull it out. What's the future hold? What's going to bite us in the backside that we need to watch out for? Well, I uh, I worry a lot about video. Um, I think video is another one of those incredible gifts where we have the opportunity at scale to add context to the words that we are delivering by sending little packets of digital video to people when we're prospecting, when we're delivering proposals, when we're building relationships. And again, I think that that's a gold mine 
let's not ruin it like we ruined the other ones by creating little generic videos that are like, hey, you, you have an interesting background. I'd like to tell you about what we do and create these three-minute videos that will that, that are already starting to cause buyers to reject video. Yeah. We've got this gift out there. If you're going to use it, embrace the gift that it is, which is this opportunity to create context. And if I'm calling you, it's Brian. I love your podcast. I listened to this episode and I loved it. You know, like being able to make it truly personalized for me to get through a hundred emails, I, I could do it in about 20 seconds to get through a hundred video emails might take me 300 minutes, right? Yeah. If they're each three minutes long, but we're going to reject that very quickly unless everybody embraces this idea of its power in personalization and context. Love it. Well, this has been a lot of fun, fun thought. I really appreciate it. So, Hey, listen, who should reach out to you? How should they do it? And why should somebody reach out to you here? Oh yeah, so I'm hard not to find. It's just Todd Capone. That's uh, the, use the old Google machine. I'm I'm pretty much everywhere. Um, you know, He's on my website. Google. Yeah, that's right. Uh, so transparencysale.com. I have a blog uh, there that you can sign up for. Uh, anybody who's in sales or sales leadership, I think, um, is, is kind of ideal for that. My expertise is in tech. So I uh, speak. I'm doing. I, I literally I wrote. A little side note, I, I uh, four proposals yesterday to speak at sales kickoffs. And with each proposal, I sent a little video that goes along with it that gives it context. There's so much power in that for everybody. When you send proposals, go half screen and describe your proposal next to them. It, it's amazing the impact that that has in consensus buying. All right. With, with that aside, though, um, I, I teach transparency, transparent negotiating, uh, the presentation choreography, and then I've got a sales leadership program that not only teaches a foundation for sales leadership, but the behavioral science around engagement and motivation, that not the coin-operated style. Like, how do you create an engaged sales organization? And that's what's keeping me busy. So if that's something that's interesting, let me know. Got it. So, Todd, I can't thank you enough. This has been really interesting, really good topics, really good insights. Um, love the pushback and feedback. And um, But the funny thing is, we still align. Yay! Exactly. So, <laughs> hey, look at that, a conversation, right? So, holy cow. Hey, listen, everyone, I really appreciate it. Um, listen, 2020 is closing down. Uh, don't give up. Keep after it. Press on. The work that you do right now is going to set you up for Q1 of 2021. Lord willing, 2021 is going to be way better than this crazy, crazy time we're going through. So, hey, Brian Whittington, get after it for this episode of the Talent, Sales, and Scale Show. Be good. See ya.